It's, uh, it's good to be back. I was gone last week. I got to listen to Dean online. <laughs> um, I always love it when he gets to preach. As you turn to Acts 2, I want us to consider our society, our world. It's been said by both seculars and Christians that we've moved to a post-Christian society but also that we move to a more relationship-based society and communal, and then there's the values of tolerance and diversity. And we see this this sort of everyone uh, wins and everyone's together and we're all better together sort of talk. And as we look at our society, we really see the opposite of the church or the community as God wants it. We we see the celebration of many perspectives and many teachings and pluralistic religions and everyone's white and nobody's wrong. And, but with all these worldviews and religions opposing each other, they contribute to, to disrupting society. We see a society that says relationship and community is good, but at the same time we push individualism to the extreme. You get to make all the choices you want about everything, who you are, who you love, what you do, and as long as you don't hurt anybody, we say do all you want to do. And this breaks down relationships because people go deeper into themselves and therefore they take the focus off other people. We see a society that that trusts human ambition Above all other things, a society that says you can get it done yourself, whatever you dream or you imagine, you can accomplish. You don't need anybody's help to do it. And these three things, celebrating pluralism and everybody's right and celebrating individualism and and trusting human ambition to the extreme, they really detract from the many needs a church should have. Instead of many perspectives, we we will see today that the first church valued the apostles' teaching. In other words, they valued the truth above all else. And instead of individualism, self-pleasure, and self-sufficiency, the church saw fellowship and caring for one another and meeting each other's needs as the value to have. And instead of human ambition and get it done yourself, the early church relied solely on praying that God might intervene and move his church forward. And we're told that God is the one who, might, who brought believers even to salvation. I invite you to stand as we hear the word of the Lord today in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47 together. We read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, um, proverb that struck me was, you don't answer the prayers of the, of the unrighteous. But then we heard that our righteousness is clothed in Jesus Christ in that song we just sang. So we come before you asking through Jesus, our mediator, that you would speak to us today. Use your word to get a hold of our heart, to stir up compassion, to stir up passion. Father, that we might be the church you call your church to be. Help us to have urgency for those around us. Help us to not rest on our blessed assurance, as some would say, but instead that we would be pushed and prodded to produce fruit for your kingdom. Father, we pray against the enemy. We pray that his lies and deception would not be believed. And we pray for hearts to come to you today, whether they need to be maturing or they need to accept you for the first time. Father, whatever it is that you desire to have in each and every one of us, and however you would have us respond, I pray that you would get glory today and that all of us would respond according to your word. Say what it is you desire. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And may be seated. Acts chapter 2 is really about Pentecost Sunday. And with these last verses as a bookend to the event of Pentecost Sunday. As in because of Pentecost Sunday, this happened. One of my commentaries says that contained in verses 42 through 47 is the first, quote, progress report of what Luke would really give us in his book of Acts. He gives us seven of them, and this is the first one. But seven times will, will Luke come back around and give us a report of how the church is generally faring. But we must not overlook the significance that really an early climax of this book of Acts, namely Pentecost Sunday, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the message then given by Peter, and then we saw the salvation of, of 3,000 souls. And why does Luke close this section with this progress report? And I believe in these verses we find out what Christ is for the community. This is what Christ does to the community. This is what it means when Christ is in the community. The community needs Christ. And because the community needs Christ, I have a four-point message about needs today. <laughs> a, we see four things the church needs. B, we see the greatest need of the church. C, we see needs that are met by the church. And D, we see needs met by God. Four things the church needs, the greatest need of the church, needs met by the church, and needs met by God. So right after telling us that 3,000 souls were added to the church that day, it seems that Luke would continue on about these people, the church in general, and really it's, it's four things that I think the church needs in order to be a church. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The church needs teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. But above all these things, the church needs to devote 
themselves, or I like what some translations say, they need to continue steadfastly in them. So it's important the identifier that Luke makes about the teaching that the church continued in. Luke writes they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the book of Matthew would close on what we know as the Great Commission. Jesus says to his disciples, his apostles, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And there's that word, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The apostles' teaching is Jesus-sourced. It, it echoes and it reiterates what Jesus taught his disciples in those three years with him. And it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus says in that great commission, Behold, I am with you always, he is saying what he said about the Holy Spirit. In John fourteen twenty six. he says, But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so the apostles' teaching is Jesus-sourced. The teaching is likely, especially in this first era, about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. That's what we see throughout the book of Acts. As Dean preached last week, it's the gospel. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the resurrected Christ. Uh, I like what Charles Spurgeon once said. He says, no Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. (laughs) The church needs the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, and thankfully we have it in the Bible. And I drop my pen again. It's Jesus-sourced and it's Jesus-centered. One of the apostles, John, He would outright say that teaching devoid of Jesus is false teaching. John says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 through 27, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you because you do not, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Then listen to this. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just that it has taught you, abide in him. There's a verse that a Quaker could like (laughs) that the Holy Spirit teaches us personally. The church needs the apostles' teaching, Jesus-sourced and Jesus-centered teaching. The church also needs fellowship, the second of the four things the church needs. This is something that the early church also devoted themselves to. And one thing I like about this church is, I don't know, but if you happen to stick around after church, I believe you will find others sticking around too. (laughs) In fact, sometimes I'll be at home, a very unholy pastor taking a nap, 
while people are still at the church, <laughs> leaving the parking lot, eventually. Our church is throwing a 4th of July potluck this coming week. And, and sometimes we are intentional to try to cultivate fellowship. Now, don't hear me wrong. We don't, the church does not engage in fellowship just for fellowship's sake. Because we're gathered around each other because, yea, community, but because Christ. The Greek word here for fellowship implies participating together toward a common goal. And I was thinking about this, that Christ is part of the Trinity and God has been a God who fellowships with Himself since eternity's past. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they've been participating for a common goal since eternity's past and will be for eternity future. And what Christ has done is He's invited His body, the church, into participation with that fellowship. That's how the the body reflects God, and it's why the community and the church needs it. Besides teaching and fellowship, the church also engaged in the breaking of bread. Now, is this communion, or is this just what we call a potluck or a fellowship meal? (laughs) And I will just say here that the language in this verse is unclear. Some wonder if the breaking of bread was Luke or the early church's way to say the Lord's Supper, but I don't think we can decisively, emphatically, or argue this must be the Lord's Supper because I think it goes beyond what the text makes allowances for. But what we can take away is that one way the early church worshipped is likely both in shared meals and in the Lord's Supper. And the church of today, the community, needs this as well to continue steadfastly in and to partake of Christ and remember Him and What he gave through his body and blood. The church must meditate on that and feast on that. The church also needs to be bathed in and ride on prayers. Prayers are the church's lifeblood. The Holy Spirit came and Pentecost happened on the foundation of extended prayers. Acts 1.14 says that the gathered church were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. They have prayed and prayed and prayed, and Acts will reveal to us as we continue constant records of the church coming together and returning to prayer. One of my commentators says it so well, instead of plagiarize, I'll just tell you he said it. He said, prayer expresses the core belief that life on earth cannot be lived as it should without heaven's assistance. It assumes that God himself can and does work in response to the prayers of his people. Therefore, prayer is to be pervasive in all situations, needs, and plans, as well as times when wisdom and guidance are needed. Community praying as well as private prayers are integral to the Christian life and community. I'm personally convinced that churches live or churches die in relation to their prayers. If you want to see revival, if you want to see spiritual growth, if you want your pastor to do better, you're probably going to have to fast for that. I mean, anyways. (laughs) But if you want to be better as a Christian or in relationships with your friends, family, and other Christians, I believe it starts with and it rides the wave of prayers. Some of us look at the state of affairs today, and as I said, the nation's been called a post-Christian nation, and you say, well, what do we do? Jesus' first church was in a pre-Christian pagan nation, and they prayed. 
I firmly believe that God can change this post-Christian nation into another pre-Christian nation and make this nation on the dawn of another great awakening. But the church must pray as they should be praying at all times. Four things a community needs that the first church practiced and by God's grace we should practice. The apostles' teaching, nobody else's, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Next, though, Luke would reveal the greatest need of the church in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Silhouetted in this verse, if you catch my illustration, is the very presence of God. We do not see the name of God, but we see the effects. We see the evidence of the presence of God. Beyond the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer is the fact that God's presence was with the church. And this is the greatest need of the church. One pastor I really look up to, he's uh, actually a retired pastor in Lewiston, but he's not really retired. He took on a new church, and that church is pastors. (laughs) He's a pastor to pastors. But he talks about how in ministry, pastors at times are more involved with or they're more in tune with and they're more looking into the ministry of the Lord as opposed to the Lord of the ministry. And I wonder if sometimes we as a church, we can get there. Are we more involved with, worried about, preoccupied with the ministry of the Lord? Therefore, we're looking over the Lord of the ministry. Do we keep busy with trying to get people to the Lord that we aren't connected with the Lord as much as we should be? Does that make sense? It says, and awe came upon every soul. Reverential fear, awe, and we in Christians in every era have a tendency to look at the book of Acts and miss the fact that passages like these aren't formulas for successful churches. They are records of a church whose heart is in the right place. We don't or we shouldn't have apostles doctrine fellowship or breaking of bread and prayers because that's the right thing to do shame on us if that's our motivation we do anything and everything out of the reverential fear and the love and the desire and the obsession of our god we teach the doctrines of the apostles because it's the truth about our god we fellowship in the community of the trinity we break bread remembering the broken body of our god and we Pray to God because it's His church and so He should have His say and have His way. His president, His president, His presence is evident in the first church. And the presence of God is the greatest need of the church. And so I don't say that as we look at that verse and say, we need wonders and signs. <laughs> Which the scriptures would tell us and Jesus would tell us that Signs and wonders are merely there to authenticate his ministry. But I say first and foremost, in whatever way we can get him and in however way we have him, the greatest need is a healthy fear of who God is and what he can do in our church. His presence needs to be in our churches, and so I will fight for him above all things. And I could and I should care less about anything in the church if God, if our Savior and God and Jesus is not preeminent. That's the greatest need of the church. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, what were the first things he told them to say? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It sounds like Jesus wants his people to be enamored with, to be striving for, to be yearning into, to be reliant and dependent upon God and his reputation and his kingdom and his will. To hallow something is to want something to be sacred or set apart or awe-inspiring and to have worship and glory given to whatever you are hallowing. And so the church needs to hallow God's name. The church needs to fear God's name and to fear God more than man so that when we are asked by the world to compromise convictions, we fear God more than man. And we say, well, I really want it his way, not your way. I believe the four needs of the church along with the greatest need of the church, leads to the church thriving so that needs are then met by the church. And before we look at these next two verses, I want to share something that I was really struck by a while ago in a sermon I was listening to. Um, This sermon series was following the Apostles' Creed, and they were on this line, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church, the Communion of Saints. Uh, Catholic meaning universal. So I believe in the holy universal church, the communion of saints. And the pastor was pondering the significance of that entire statement. And he said, you know, sometimes we, we get it. We understand and we agree when we say things like, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heavens, of heavens and the earth. You know, we, we understand religious or theological, supernatural, whatever you want to call it, concepts and truths. But I believe in a church. The church, as a community, has given cause for anger and bitterness and resentment and disagreement and really a desire of distance on part of individuals. Sometimes the church has. And I'm a pastor who's felt called to pastor a local church, so if it's not painstakingly evident, I believe in the local church. (laughs) And I affirm, along with the Apostles' Creed, that belief. But that doesn't mean that communities made up of sinners are infallible or will never fail or will never sin or will never hurt people. But at the same time, the Apostles' Creed was stating in essence the belief that God's desire to bring His message and to save people, His instrument that brings about growth in His kingdom is the church. And it's messy business, the church. It's sinners. And so, though we're given this this glowing progress report by Luke... Luke is not going to conceal how the church fails as he continues along in the book. One couple in the church is going to die simply because they've lied to the Holy Spirit. Other folks are going to feel marginalized, which that never happens in the church, right? The apostles, that was a joke. The apostles are going to have to make some hard decisions concerning their roles. So the church is made up of sinners But it's God's chosen, God's desired way to bring about the message of salvation to the entire world. And so when churches are thriving because they're hearing the teachings of the apostles and they are fellowshipping and they are breaking bread with one another and they are praying together and they're fearing God and allowing him to lead the church, the church can then meet needs. We read in verse 44 and 45, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
just tell you right now we're going to camp here for a while because some of you are like, yay, communism. <laughs> um, all who believed, first describing individual affirmations, I believe in God. And so all who believed were together. I believe it was John Wesley who said the Christian religion is a social religion. The essentialness of this community, though, is the believing part. Faith is the core condition of that relationship. But oftentimes, since we see faith as core, I think we overlook the relationships we should be in together. We overlook those whenever they should be just as essential as our faith. We in America, especially fractured Protestant America, we run away with our individual faiths. And suddenly, everything is a reason to break fellowship. Meanwhile, back in Ephesians 4, Paul would urge us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. I'm not broad stroking anything, but I was just in Kansas and sometimes it feels like churches don't act like that. There's people who instead of humility, they take pride. Instead of gentleness, they're really rough. And instead of patient, they're impatient. And instead of bearing with one another in love, they're bearing with one another in judgment, <laughs> uh, eager to not maintain the unity, but ready to leave at the drop of a hat. <laughs> the church had all things in common. We see that this is a community really living together and doing life together. So when the bills came up, they went to the church before they went to the bank or the government. When justice needed to take place, uh, they considered it perhaps a church matter, not a government matter. When believers struggled in sin, it was a matter to be handled in the community with the church, not alone as a diligent prayer warrior. When someone wrestled with bitterness or unforgiveness or doubt or anger, the church was available to confess sins to and to bear one another's burdens instead of holding it inside or, or maybe if your bitterness is with the church community, going to another church community, hoping that the problems would fade away. They had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many had need. I mentioned at the outset of our series in the book of Acts that many Christians peruse the book and say, what from this book, what from the early church can we use to unlock the key? Um, as in, why don't we look like these guys? And so... What's the magical formula? And like Christians of all ages do, they do look for formulas and devices and rituals and outward signs. And they completely overlook the fact that the source is Christ and his Holy Spirit's power. And not necessarily, not, not necessarily what the church did at this point in time in history. I said in my first sermon in Acts, if I was given three wishes to implement anything from Acts in the church, I would just need one, the Holy Spirit. Because I firmly believe the book of Acts isn't to be read as a blueprint and regulative principle for the church to just mimic down to jot and tittle. But it's to be read as a here's what happens when the church relies on God for the mission. When the church uses the power of God to do his mission. So I say all that to say that sometimes Christians in history have looked at this passage in Acts as a blueprint for communal living. And I believe they would go beyond Luke here and they would add a verse in the Bible and say, and so thus, every Christian of every generation 
should live in this sort of community if they want to be genuine believers. And I don't think Luke says such things, and I don't think the rest of the Bible says such things. In fact, if we go on in the book of Acts, again, we're going to see setbacks, breakdowns, problems within this community. Some will feel pressured to give to the community and then lie about how much they give. Others will feel neglected. And so I say all this to say that while the church presented here is a glowing progress report, I believe we shouldn't feel pressured or saddened if we're not living verbatim this sort of community. Consider the culture and the times that the church was birthed in. Jesus said to the apostles that the temple was going to fall. The apostles obviously believed that Jerusalem's days were numbered and maybe even Rome's days were numbered. Even up to the ascension, the apostles wondered if if Jesus was going to bring back Israel. Um, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians that considering the times they lived in, marriage may not be the best option for Christians if they hope to persevere, if they want to be solely focused on Jesus. It was hard to make a family in that culture. So all this to say that coming together with their own community and living communally as a big family had its obvious merits in that day and age. They weren't living in America where you and I can still meet freely for church every Sunday. They weren't living in a nation that was founded on Judeo-Christian values, period. They were living in a domineering, tyrannical, oppressed nation where Jews had little sympathy among the powers that be and Christians were just a nuisance separating from the Jews in the Roman authorities' mind. Does all this make sense? So I'm approaching this historically and descriptively. But at the same time, we need not to be afraid to ask, what about this community culture can we learn? And I'm not afraid to say that there may be times, places, situations, occurrences where maybe it's time to live communally to this degree. This communal living was not communism. The government wasn't forcing these Christians to give up their possessions and lands. Neither was Peter or the apostles. It was all voluntary. Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, Why, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Ananias and Sapphira had complete ownership. And they had no obligation to do anything with their property. People still had possessions as well. Not all was given. And verse 46, where we're reading, would say, record for us that they still had homes, which is where they broke their bread and met together in. They owned them. Throughout Acts and the rest of the New Testament, biblical authors would record that Christians had homes where they met. So this wasn't communism. This wasn't a structured institutionalize, okay, here's what you do with your homes and possessions if you want to be part of us. This was all voluntary. Give you an example of what it was. When I was in my teens, I have two older brothers, and uh, the one closest to me, almost exactly three years older than I, he had this weird tendency. I guess he took it out of Acts. And I'd see him in my clothes sometimes. And I would say, those are my shorts. What are you doing with my shorts? Or I would be looking forever back whenever we had these little round things called CDs. Maybe some of you have heard of them. And I would be looking forever in my music collection. And then he would ask, hey, what you looking for? I says, oh, uh, this CD. And he says, oh, that's in my car. I've been listening to it. And I guess I'm anti-biblical because I got upset. And I would say, these are my things. Those are my clothes. That's my CD. Just ask before you take them. Don't just assume. And I wasn't too upset because we're a family and I know all the things would be within reach and probably stay in the same house 
unless if he put it in his car forever. The church was then and is now a family. I think there is decency and courtesy in asking and not assuming. Oh, I got a bill. Good thing, uh, you know, uh, Jim's going to pay that for me. <laughs> not that sort of thing. But the early church, that's what the early church was in this unique time of birthing, all the under the circumstances they were in. Needs were met by the church. Uh, the church saw itself as a family. And suddenly people who came from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different religions and tribes, what have you, they were friends and family. To give you a contemporary illustration, Jack, liberal, um, militant atheist, converts to Christianity. And he says to Joe, wacko, conspiracy theorist, conservative, who has been a hardcore legalist fear-monger, and he found out Jesus loves people, um, hey, Joe, I see you're under the weather, your family is suffering, and you just can't seem to shake this illness. You know, I've had three cars, and it's really more than we need, so I sold one, and I want you to have this money until you get back on your feet. That's the sort of thing that was going on. The principle of this point is emphasized at the end of verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. John the Evangelist would emphasize the heart this came from in 1 John 3:16 through 18. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And so look at the bearing it has on us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We see in the church meeting the needs of others, it's a living out of what's in their heart. That's a very challenging truth. I look at my own life and what do I do with my possessions? Jesus says in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what's happening here in this first church. We're seeing where their treasure is. It's on the goodwill of the brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says in Galatia, to the church in Galatia, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Where is our heart, Christian? Where, where is our heart, church? Does this sort of meeting the needs of others flow naturally out of our hearts or does where our treasures live, where they go, where do they go to? In other words, just look at your checkbook and you'll find out where your heart is at to see where your money is going. Some of you are like, well, that's weird. It's going to student loans. No. <laughs> okay, just me. Um, the church needs apostolic teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. The greatest need of the church is a healthy fear of God and a desire of his presence over all things. If doing this, the church will be able to meet the needs of others. But then we end today on noting where God meets needs. Look with me in verses 46 through 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There were a, a few reasons I, I considered preaching from a different translation today, but I got tired of telling you I'm changing Bibles, so I stuck with the ESV. 
All that to say, though, this word generous, I don't know where the ESV comes from. A more literal translation would be singleness or simplicity of heart. And I bring that up because it reflects the the humility and the receptivity of the Christian heart. And I believe this phrase here, the sincerity or simplicity of heart, is immediately connected with the following words. uh, Praising God, excuse me, um, yeah, that the Christians spent time in the temple breaking bread in their homes and receiving food with glad and simple hearts, praising God. Because God has given them this grace at this time, they had favor with all the people. Now, wouldn't that be something in our day and age? We're so quick to scoff and say, well, never in our day and age have you seen the news, what they say about Christians. Let us not overlook how we've been challenged, though, by the the four things the church needs and the greatest need of God's presence and meeting the needs of others. If we followed those four things, I wonder if we would have greater favor in the world. Also, though, let us not overlook the story of Acts, where it seems that this is a short-lived favor among the people. (laughs) The next chapter records the healing of a lame man, which Peter, for some reason, has to go to prison for. (laughs) And hard times come, and higher-ups remember Jesus' crucifixion, and they're probably saying, we need to do this to 12 more people. Persecution will come, the church will scatter, and the favor with all the people will not be so present. But... The greatest need met by God is in the final words. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Dean brought it up last week slightly, and we saw it in the text prior to where I'm at in Acts. There's this marriage between God's sovereignty and man's accountability. Uh, Peter said, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed By the hands of lawless men. So we see in that verse, Jesus' end was planned and foreknown by God. But at the same time, that plan consisted of the moral responsibility and the freely chosen acts of the lawless men who executed that plan. I'm not saying if you completely understand it, but do you follow my logic? Okay. In the same way, we, by God's grace, we go about church, we... We try to cultivate it with the necessities of teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers, leaning into and striving for God's presence. And we try to meet the needs of the gathered community. But through it all, people come to salvation and the the Lord adds to the number of those who are being saved. Luke doesn't expand any more than that. But we do know that it takes God to bring someone to salvation. We do know that it took took God to come to earth to save his people, that we've not worked ourselves to God. We do know that God has invited people to be saved through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and we have not done anything to make ourselves capable of being saved. We do know that the Spirit woos the unbelieving heart to hear and receive the gospel, and we don't have enough reason and light to make a decision apart from the Spirit's help. John Wesley would say, Follow me in this. It's a lengthy quote, but I believe in you all. You're all older than me. What a thick veil is between him, that is the unbeliever, and the invisible world, which with regard to him, it is as though it had no being. He is not the least. He has not the least perception of it. 
not the most distant idea. He has not the least sight of God, nor any the least attraction toward him or desire to have any knowledge of his ways, although his light be gone forth into all lands and his sound unto the end of the world. Yet he heareth no more thereof than of the fabled music of the spheres. He tastes nothing of the goodness of God or the powers of the world to come. He does not feel the working of the Holy Spirit in his heart. But the moment the Spirit of the Almighty strikes the heart of him that was till then without God in the world, it breaks the hardness of his heart and creates all things new. The Son of Righteousness appears and shines upon his soul, showing him the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is in a new world. All things around him are become new, such it has never before entered into his heart to conceive. He sees so far as his newly opened eyes can bear the sight. The opening heavens around him shine with beams of sacred bliss. Friends, salvation is of the Lord, and the Lord adds to the church those who would be saved. These are needs met by God. So the community needs Christ. The church needs Christ. And in order to receive Christ, we need to be listening to the apostles' teaching by the word. We need to be intentional about fellowship especially in our time and place, intentional, proactive, calling people up, getting together. Uh, I put some things out there a while ago about having friends over. There's Bible study in the middle of the week. There are times for you to call each other up. Take advantage when the church doors are open. We need to be breaking bread together. We need to be praying, always praying. We need to be intentional about letting God lead and listening to his word and fearing his name and treating him with the awe he deserves. We need to check our hearts. And how we do that is often we check our checkbooks. (laughs) Check at where our money is going and where our time is going and where our efforts are going and what we're thinking about. And if we care about Christ and his mission, then we need to be available to go where he wants us to go. Trusting that he's the one adding to the church. We're just being faithful where he wants us to be faithful. And it comes back to being a countercultural community. That instead of all religions and all thinking is okay, Christ calls us to stand apart from the world and say, no, God, God has spoken. He's right. What He says goes. He has, our best and at, <clears throat> he has our best at heart, so we listen to Him. Christ calls us to stand apart from a world that values and treasures individual expression above all things. And we say, no, Christ came, the God of the universe, but he laid down his life for the world. We must do likewise. We must lose ourselves, not find ourselves for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and his people. And in a world that values self-sufficiency and get her done, we must be a community that says we're here for each other. No one suffers alone. No one rejoices alone. And if we, by God's grace, can be that community What would that mean for our community outside these walls? What would that mean for Woodland if we can bring that Christ to our community? Let's pray. Father, you tell us in your word that there's nothing new under the sun. And we look at this this first church, this first progress report, some of us are a little jealous and some of us are tempted to say that they had better resources, that they were more better equipped. But your word tells us that every good gift comes from you and your word tells us, we just read 
some biblically inspired theology from John Wesley that you are the spirit that awakens our hearts to do any good. And we trust that your spirit is with us today. We trust that your spirit is still calling people home to salvation. We still trust that you have a plan and a purpose for the reason our church is on this hill. And we still trust that you can bring any good from all sorts of bad. So, Father, if many of us, if any of us are convicted in any sort of way, we pray that that conviction would lead to repentance. We pray that we wouldn't walk away in guilt, that we wouldn't make assumptions about who you are, that we wouldn't think that you hate us, but rather that you, as the Proverbs tell us, that you reprove because you love, that you bring about truth that we need to hear so that we might change and we can change by your spirit. Father, I pray that we would take advantage of our community, that if any of us are suffering alone, if any of us are are entangled in sin, if any of us are mourning the loss or, or grieving over anything, that we wouldn't bottle it up, but rather we would make use of the community you've given us, that we would reach out to brothers and sisters we trust, and that those brothers and sisters would be trustworthy, and that they would be willing and able to help because we care for one another. But, Father, we pray and ask these things um, in Christ's name and because of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.